mean, very early in the evolution, in the in the history of, of Light the Wind, somebody sent us a message saying, one of the things I love about Light the Wind is you need a bookmark to read it. And we were like, that is perfect. Like the idea that you would pick it up, have a read with a coffee, put it down, pick it up again. But slow journalism. So when, when, when you and I spoke for this podcast four years ago, we were still very much in that mission. Um, what's happened since, and this actually slightly goes back to the confidence thing, is that we've become much more mission-driven around tackling social issues through the lens of running. And and that um, is because we now know that we've got a platform. You know, we know that we're reaching thousands and thousands of readers in 40 countries around the world. And with that comes, a, 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 I think, a, an obligation to address some some issues that really trouble us and that we're really determined to, to kind of want to talk about. Confidence that we've got better writers, we're able to tell these stories in a, in a better way. Um, and we've been super lucky. What's up, everyone? That was Simon Freeman. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. My guest this week, making his second appearance on the show, is Simon Freeman. Simon, who is the co-founder, editor, and publisher of my favorite running magazine, it's called Like the Wind, and it's a beautiful quarterly coffee table style publication for runners, by runners, first appeared on episode 18. Check that one out if you haven't already, and you can learn more about Simon, his professional and athletic backgrounds, and the origins of Like the Wind, which he and his wife Julie launched back in 2014. In this conversation, we mostly geeked out about all things publishing and media. Simon told me about how Like the Wind has evolved over the past four years, the exciting position the magazine is in right now, and where he and Julie hope to take it moving forward. We also talked about the current running media landscape and how it's changed since our last conversation, the state of Simon's own relationship with running and the big goal that he has on the horizon, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for supporting the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring-summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. From their ultra-versatile session tees and tanks cut from a silky, soft stretch knit, which feels oh so good against your body, to the soft yet supportive Alston Half Tights. That is my go-to workout kit every Wednesday morning, by the way. These pieces are built to work as hard as you do. I'm also a big fan of the Twilight Tank, which is the singlet I've been racing in for the past few years. It's super lightweight and built to race, and I just feel faster when I put it on. In the spirit of Twilight, Tracksmith is hosting a series of 5Ks through the months of July and August in eight cities across the U.S. I will be at the two in San Francisco, and I cannot wait. These Twilight 5Ks focus on getting you to your fastest time with pacers, a fast track, and a great environment. 
For more information, please go to tracksmith.com slash twilight5000. And remember, if you buy anything on tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field by using the code MARIO22 at checkout. That's MARIO22 when you check out at tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Open. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. Open is like my new favorite thing that I make time for each day. Like a lot of people, I can easily get swept up in the inertia of the day-to-day, and if I've been go-go-going without making time to stop and recenter myself, I'll be tight and stressed. This is where Open comes in. I do a 5-10 to minute breathwork class most days to get away from my desk and clear my head. It's easy and effective, and I'm always much better off coming out of a class than before I went into it. With Open, you have access to unlimited live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and more. Connect directly with your teachers during in-class live streams, and bring a friend to any class with unlimited guest passes. So, let's take a class together. Open is giving Morning Shakeout listeners 30 days free when you visit withopen.com slash Mario. Again, you can join me on Open by going to withopen.com slash Mario. Let me know what you think, and I'll see you in class. Okay, that'll do it for the introduction. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with someone whose work in this industry I deeply respect and admire, Simon Freeman. Simon Freeman, my only regret is that we are not having this conversation over a beer in person, either in Europe where you're based or here in the US, but it's a real pleasure to welcome you back to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, um, I'm similarly to you, wish that we were sitting together somewhere, but uh, sadly it wasn't to be. Yeah. Amazingly, it's been four years since I had you on the podcast. It was episode... 13. And here we are four years later, we've stayed in touch. We've actually seen each other, fortunately, a few times since then in person. And where I want to start this conversation is picking up on one that we started offline just a couple weeks ago. And you are in this very exciting position where you recently sold Freestack, your marketing agency that you co-owned with your wife, Julie. And that is going to allow you to spend even more time, which is unbelievable because you already spent an immense amount of time on Like the Wind, but your quarterly running magazine that has been going strong for just about eight years now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really exciting period. We, I mean, it, going back to the, to the genesis of the whole thing, I mean, Julie and I launched Freestack together Um Mainly as an experiment, we'd done a bit of work uh, before we launched the business um, together, and just thought, well, it would be really cool to, to to try, you know, working together, launching our own business. So we so we set Freestack up, and um, obviously didn't have enough work because it was a fledgling business, right? <laughs> so we had this idea then of you know well i wonder we 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 really wanted the running magazine that we wanted to read and that we felt didn't exist so we thought well we haven't got any clients in the agency or not enough 
So we'll la launch this magazine almost to kind of fill in the gap. And over eight years, both uh, Freestack and Like the Wind have grown immensely. So suddenly we've got two, it, it, it started to become unmanageable. Like it started to get to the point where we couldn't do both justice. So, um, so this new phase for, for Freestack is incredibly exciting. Um, we're, we're um, partnering, we're, 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 we're merging with, a, with an agency that we've long admired. I've known the guy that runs it for 10 years. So uh, it's, it's a really exciting um, new phase for that. And then, as you say, you know, in due course, that is going to mean that we can then pay uh, like the wind the attention that we think it deserves because it's always felt underloved by us like we've we've never had as much time as we really want to dedicate to it um so we're sort of hoping that we'll resolve that going back to the initial conversation we had for the podcast four years ago and subsequent ones you and i have had since then like the wind has always been a side project to yeah what you're doing with Freestack, but a full-time side project. And we talked about that in detail in the first podcast that we recorded. So I don't want to rehash all of that, but just sort of paint the picture for me and the listeners of how things evolved over just say the past four years, really, since we, we last talked where Freestack had grown, where Like the Wind had grown, and just how you and Julie were navigating that together the challenges of growth on both fronts yeah i mean the magazine i would say has grown much more organically like we weren't we were just really focused on trying to improve the quality and by that i mean improve the design improve the quality of the stories we've been very lucky that i think we kind of hit this zeitgeist around storytelling and running becoming something that lots of brands were interested in in getting involved in so we've been very fortunate that that we've had more and more support from brands that wanted to get involved and that money obviously allows us to to improve the quality to to, to pay more contributors I mean when we started out we were we were going around with a begging bowl like we were unable to pay people um, to uh, contribute anything really photography illustration or, or or writing to the magazine because it wasn't making any money it was losing money we were we were paying out of our own pockets to to produce every issue um so that situation has has, has changed and the magazine the, the 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 number of copies we sell has grown um pretty organically you know by word of mouth which is great um but of course um that's a, that's sort of symptomatic of the fact that we didn't really have the time perhaps that we needed to, to sort of do the to do the work to, to grow the magazine. And Julie made this really interesting point when we were talking a couple of days ago. The amount of effort that it takes for us to produce, uh, you know, a full magazine of content is the same whether we print a thousand copies or a hundred thousand copies. Like right. there's so you almost we almost feel like once we've gone to the effort and the writers have gone to the effort and the photographers have supplied the photography the illustrators have done their work once we've done all of that it, it does sometimes feel like a bit of a shame for us to not have done as much work as we could to kind of grow the grow the um grow the readership of the magazine um but yeah so it's been a kind of slow relatively organic development in all areas you know numbers of readers um 
quality of the content, how much we understand about publishing. I mean, when we started the magazine, we literally, uh, we had no idea. I mean, Julie, Julie was watching YouTube videos on how to lay out a page in InDesign, you know, to learn how to, <laughs> to, learn how to do the layouts. Um, so we've learned, I guess, how to be better publishers. Um, you know, I'm on this constant learning curve to try and learn how to be an editor. I had no idea what I was doing. How do I help a writer to, to do better work? Um, so all of that has all been a, 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 a relatively slow progression. That was one of my favorite parts of our initial conversation for the podcast, you describing how Julie was teaching herself InDesign, like literally jumped off the cliff and tried to figure out how to build the parachute on the way down as you had this first print deadline that you had to hit. It's been really amazing to see as a subscriber to the magazine, the quality of all the things that you just described, the writing, the illustrations, the photography, just continue to improve over the last few years. I'd love to understand how you, as you just described, as an editor, have grown since yeah. you started the magazine eight years ago, what have you learned that you were completely blind to? And the answer might be everything, but let's dig into the specifics of it. When you first started this, that has helped you to better be able to steer the ship. Um, I mean, I think that there's going to be two aspects to this. One um, is some sorts of technical knowledge and the other is confidence. So probably the first thing is, I have bought books and listened to podcasts and researched online and, and talked to ed real editors, people who actually know what they're doing, to try and glean information on, on the technical aspects of, you know, I remember, you know, learning, learning what a lead is, like literally like reading a chapter in a book and it described yeah. a lead and I was like okay that's a, okay so that's fine and I absorbed that bit of information you know the technical aspects of um you know how how a story can can can, can be crafted and and how I can go back to a writer and have some sort of discourse with them and say look I love the idea but what I need is more of this and less of that and or how I work very closely with Imogen, our um, deputy editor, yeah, co-editor, and she has got decades of experience as a sub-editor. So she will help me to think about how maybe a story can be cut up and re, um, you know, reformatted so that an element that was buried halfway through suddenly becomes the lead and, and, and the opening part of a story. So, so there's that technical side. Um, the other bit that's really important is that I don't feel as though, or I, I did certainly didn't feel as though I had any right to tell somebody um, what to do because I didn't know what I was doing myself. Um, so I think there's a, an element of um, confidence of thinking, okay, I, I, I can actually, you know, express an opinion and and say this is this, this is how I want the story to. To, to, to cut to, to sort of be presented right. um, and not you know overcome overcome my crippling uh, imposter syndrome and 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 say to a writer look you know I love this but could you consider more of that or less of that or you know whatever it happens to be um, that's that's sort of the other crucial element that I think editors have in spades that I'm always trying to get from them is is how do you 
you know, why do you have the confidence to edit my work? I love it when people edit my work. Um, so yes, that, that, those are the two kind of, um, parts of the growth trajectory, I would say. As time has gone on, have you felt less imposter syndrome than you did when you first got started or were just a couple years in as you've gained this experience and expertise, just putting your reps in, putting out to this point, 31 issues of the magazine? Yeah. I mean, on one front, yes, because I do, uh, if I need reminding, I'll go into the into the lounge and look at the, the shelf, our bookshelf with 31 issues of the magazine on it and think, okay. We have produced 31 copies of the magazine. Like, there's clearly something going right. Um, There's a but to that. So so yes is the answer. Yes, I do feel more confident in myself. Um, There is a but to that, which is we are seeking out uh, and looking to work with better writers. And the better the writer, the more I feel like I'm not quite, I don't have the authority to, to sort of, go back to them and the irony is it's completely untrue like uh, we're working with um you know in the next edition that's going to that's gone to print in fact um and it's you know will be out in a a week or two um one of the pieces one of the main features is written by uh, a lady called A.K. Clemens who writes regularly for the New York Times so I'm you know starstruck but A.K really wants to work with me like she really wants my opinion so yeah that's a bit of a double-edged sword in in some senses i feel overawed by the people we're now having a chance to work with but they seem to be more and more open to to feedback which is great as you enter this period of professional transition where you will be able to put more of your time and energy and resources into like the wind does that make you feel like, oh, now I'm a professional editor. I'm not just doing this on the side. This is my full-time job and my sole professional focus where in years past, because of circumstances that we've described, it hasn't been that. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a cloak of protection, wasn't there? If we made a mistake, we're like, oh, well, it's just a side project. It's just something we do for for exactly. fun. And, and, and that changes. And I can imagine, you know, that must be the same for somebody who transitions from being a talented amateur runner to suddenly they're a pro. Um, you, you know, the world is a little less forgiving because this is, you're supposed to be good at this. This is what you mm-hmm. do for a living, you know. Um, I mean, I think we're still really lucky with Like the Wind that, that um, you know, most people that know anything about the magazine know that it's still very much a, a, a small operation by people that are really passionate about storytelling and running rather than, you know, part of a big corporate publisher. Um, But yeah, I love it. I I mean, I love it in the sense that, you you know, with that opportunity for me to spend more time working with great writers, to do more writing myself comes pressure because I can't say, Oh, it's just our sort of fun side project. Um, So yeah, it's a, Again, it's going to be another very interesting phase in my life. Well, I thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate that perspective. And it really resonates with me because now my full-time job is primarily coaching other runners, but this podcast and its accompanying newsletter, which came first and started as a side project when I had another full-time job. And I had no professional 
ambitions behind it. And much like you just described, I always thought that if I no longer wanted to do it or it wasn't interesting to me anymore, well, I still had this full-time job to fall back on. It didn't really matter. I wasn't letting anything down. I had this, like, as you called it, like this, this cloak that was protecting me. And fast forward, not even two years, circumstances necessitated that I needed to figure out what I was going to do professionally because I was at this crossroads. And all I really wanted to do was coach runners and write the newsletter. The podcast wasn't in the picture yet. And I found a way to monetize the newsletter. And I mean, it still took almost a year and a half before I was able to do that with any stability. But it did, if I'm being honest, change my relationship to it, where like I've got to put this thing out every week. There is sponsorship behind it that is helping to make it possible, but needs to reach readers. And I think there are pluses and minuses to that. Um, I think on the positive side, it does force you to be more accountable. You can't miss your deadlines. It has to go out. And I'm very proud of the fact that as of this week, the newsletter has gone out 341 weeks in a row. On the other side, it does create this pressure where it does feel like work every once in a while, even though I love doing it. And I didn't necessarily have that before it was part of what I did for my career. So I can completely understand where you're coming from, but I'm very excited for you because I've known you for a while now. I know how much time, energy, and effort you've already put into like the wind. And I am super excited as a subscriber and just a fan of, of what you and Julie are doing to see how it evolves from here on out, yeah. how you evolve as an editor and a publisher from here yeah. on out. Yeah. yeah. Looking back on where like the wind has come from before even this most recent transition, which is still very, very recent from Let's just say when we last talked for the podcast, mm-hmm. you had just put out issue 15. And now you've you've doubled that. You've put out twice as many issues, 30, 31. So double that plus one. How has the magazine evolved since then? I mean, the look and feel of it are very much the same. The size of it's very much the same. It's still coming out on a quarterly schedule, but take me inside the operation and some of the conversations you and Julie have had and just some of the changes that you've been deliberate about making or you realized over time needed to be made. Yeah. Well, that's, I I mean, I love that you asked that question. I will just quickly interject and say, I love as an interview, you're, I love your questioning. So this is a, uh, this is a great question. I mean, um, we have when when you and I spoke, we were on issue fifteen. I think we we were still on a mission at that point that was primarily um, trying to bring stories about running to the readers in a way that was visually appealing. Um, you know, op, ink on paper. So we have this idea that people will just sort of slow down, take a moment. I mean, very early in the evolution in the in the history of of Light the Wind, somebody sent us a message saying. One of the things I love about Like the Wind is that you need a bookmark to read it. And we were like, that is perfect. Like the idea that you would pick it up, have a read with a coffee, put it down, pick it up again. But slow journalism. So 
when we, when you and I spoke for this podcast four years ago, we were still very much in that mission. Um, what's happened since, and this actually slightly goes back to the confidence thing, is that we've become much more mission driven around tackling social issues through the lens of running. And, and that um, is because we now know that we've got a platform. Um, you know, we know that we're reaching thousands and thousands of readers in 40 countries around the world. And with that comes, a, 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 I think, a, an obligation to um, address some, some issues that, that we're really that, that really trouble us and that we're really determined to, to kind of want to talk about. Um, confidence that we've got better writers, that, you know, that we're able to tell these stories in a, in a better way. Um, and we've been super lucky that the, the way the magazine works commercially is that we have a very small number of brands that support us for a year. They all know what Like the Wind is all about. They know what they're getting into. No one's going to be surprised when we are writing pieces about racism, about the environment, about gender inequality, about body dysmorphia, about eating disorders. They're not, they're not going to go, oh, my goodness, what are you doing? Because we've been doing that more and more and more frequently um, and with more confidence. So I think probably the biggest change, because everything else has been probably more organic. You know, we've had, as I said, uh, external writers have, have just they've got better. We've got better at being editors. The design has has sort of improved, but not necessarily dramatically in big step changes. It's kind of evolved almost issue by issue. Um, where I think we've been much more determined is what are the issues we want to talk about? How do we talk about them through the lens of running? And um, yeah, that's been, and it's something I'm really proud of is, is the fact that we now have in every issue, we are tackling a social issue or giving voice to people that we don't think are well heard in the running world. Um, and that's been very uh, decisive for, for us. Yeah, I, I love to hear how intentional that's been for you and your team, because as a regular reader of the magazine, that's been the biggest thing that I've noticed. And some of it is very direct right from the cover and who and what you have on display front and center. And then you flip open the cover and you often tackle or address a lot of this in your editor's letter. And then there's always at least one, if not more features about all things that you just described, mm. racism, environmental issues, gender inequality, body dysmorphia, you name it. And I am someone who really appreciates that because I think there are a lot of other more established media platforms in running who are afraid to address those things. They don't want to lose subscribers and they're more fearful of pissing off advertisers, which keep the operation running. And if they do that and someone who's putting up big dollars pulls out, that could, you know, really be the end of what it is that that they're doing so i admire your courage to do that but also knowing the sponsor relationships partner relationships that you have formed that you and julie and like the wind have aligned yourself with brands who share similar values and a similar mission and when you put out a new issue it's 
not a question. It's we are here to support you in getting this message out. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, we we are we are proudly reader supported publication. So in terms of what it takes for us to um, for this thing to be commercially viable, um, people buying the magazine through subscriptions and single copy sales is far outweighs the amount that we receive from brands, right? So if I'm going to upset anyone, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I worry about losing anyone, it's, I worry about losing the readers, honestly, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they are the reason we do it. And as I say, they, 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 they generate, you know, the, the, the bulk of the money that we need to, to make the publication successful. Well, let's talk about that a little bit to the degree that you're comfortable with. What has been some of the reader response to this intentional, I don't even want to call it a, a shift in direction. I think it's just an evolution of the content that you're putting out. I mean, I think pe- people that love it will tell us. People that don't will just stop buying the magazine, honestly. They, this, we don't get feedback from people that say, I really am not, I really don't enjoy the fact that you want to talk about these issues, some of which are a little bit difficult, um, a little bit emotionally triggering. They don't, they don't tell us that. They just stop buying the magazine. Um, and the number of people buying the magazine is going up. So I guess from that that we're finding that niche. I mean, I'm really fascinated by, um, you know, someone said to me a little while ago, well, you know, running's a bit of a niche, isn't it? And I was like, I guess so. Not everyone runs, for sure, but it's quite a big niche if you talk about the universe mm-hmm. of people that at any point in a week pull on a pair of trainers and go for a run, right? There's quite a lot of people. Um, but actually, our audience is, is very much a small niche within a niche, but it doesn't need to be enormous. We don't need to be selling you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of copies. So um, yeah. we're finding those people. They're finding us. Um, and and you know, the feedback is the proof is in the pudding isn't it? It's if they're buying it, if they're subscribing and paying good money, I mean, it's 32 pounds, I guess that's what, $38 for a, for a, a year's subscription, which is four issues. It's not cheap, certainly not free. Um, the fact that people are paying for it is, is indication to me that, that we're, we're reaching the right people. Yeah. And providing them value. Otherwise they wouldn't fork over that money, you know, once a year or four times a year if they're buying single copy issues. But I think you raise a, a very important point that I love to dig deeper into with you. And that's this niche within a niche because I do this as well. And I think we have a lot of overlap between our audiences and just our approach to how we do things. And you're right. And we're seeing it more and more today in 2022, these different niches starting to emerge. I mean, they've always been there to be fair, but now because it's so easier to be in air quotes, a publisher um, on an individual level or to make a, you know, a small publication, whether it's in print as you're doing, if you're digital only, I mean, however you you want to do it, we're seeing more and more of that. And I think that's great uh, because I do, I think if if it's done right, it doesn't really segregate the the population. Um, you have people who come into running for their own reasons. Maybe they love just the competitive side of the sport, and they can find that niche. Maybe they 
love hearing about the benefits of running for mental health and they can find that niche. Maybe they love crew culture and they can find that niche. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're seeing more and more of that than, than ever before. And I think in my observation anyway, some of the bigger, more established publications that were trying to be everything to everyone are having a hard time because you can't really be true to any one thing and you're not speaking to any specific audience and they're, they're going to tune out eventually if they're not seeing, if they're not seeing content that really speaks to them or that they're, they're interested in. So, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think running is just this, this one big niche, but I mean, we're seeing, you know, these, these smaller niches really start to, you know, gain momentum and the last thing I'll, I'll add to that is I think a lot of them, we're doing this, uh, other brands are doing this, where they're, they're not in competition with each other necessarily. There's actually more collaboration there. And that wasn't the case before. You had, you know, the bigger publications like, you know, you, you have Runner's World, you have Running Times, you have, you know, Women's Running, um, Competitor Magazine, which I worked at, which is, is now defunct, um, but competing against one another for, for audience, for eyeballs, also for, you know, advertising dollars to keep themselves going, subscribers to keep themselves going. And now, I mean, I've been a part of a number of collaborations with other smaller, more niche kind of media, media brands. And I think by, by doing that, you know, you create some overlap, but you also, you know, just show other people what's out there in running, you know, that's different from, you know, your own experience. And it may not be the thing for you, but at least you're, you know, you're aware of it and it's presented in a way that feels really, you know, approachable and collaborative, but also complementary. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that if, if we, if we think about the person out, the person that's buying like the wind, they're the kind of person who, for whom running is, a really, really significant part of their life. I was about to say everything, possibly not everything, but it's a really big part of their life. That person. I'm that person. That's a fact. Right. And so when another beautiful, really sort of beautifully curated and produced running magazine comes out, I don't worry that Mario is about to buy that one and stop buying mine. I'm not worried about that. I know that you're going to buy both because running is such a huge part of your life. And it's like, I think that for um, uh, uh, some of the other publishers that you've been talking about, the thinking was, well, somebody will be buying a magazine uh, because they're kind of interested in running. Maybe they're training for a marathon or something. Mm -hmm. And if they buy a different magazine, they won't buy the first one. They'll buy one running magazine because they're just going to buy one. Um, the people that I'm talking about are going to listen to your podcast and three or four other or five or six or seven others. And they're going to buy every really beautifully produced running uh, magazine out there. If there were more than one, because running's means so much to them and they want to have a shelf with lots of, you know, they're not, they're not going to say, well, yeah, I'm, you know, kind of one and one and done as it were, they're, they're going to, uh, indulge their passion for running in, 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 in lots of sort of ways. So I, I don't really worry. I, you know, I don't worry about it. I've had people that have, when, when, uh, when, um, I mean, our mutual friends, right. When, when Tracksmith started publishing meter, I had a couple of people say, Oh my goodness, are you not, are you not really scared? And I was like, 
Not really. It's just adding to the to, to the universe of really beautifully produced running stories. I mean, it's mm-hmm. okay. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna read meter, but they're not gonna. People are not gonna. Those people that I'm trying to attract are not gonna stop reading Light the Wind because they're reading meter. They're gonna have both, and their life is gonna be enriched because there's now two. I, I suspect there's a point where if you had. I don't know, 50 or 60 or 70, then then you do get into a game of, well, people are not going to buy all of them. But Right. But to, to that point, one, we're certainly not there yet in my observation. <laughs> no but way, quality is always going to trump everything else. I think if there are 60 or 70 publications out there and there are three to five really good ones, most people who running is a big part of their life and they appreciate quality, they're going to gravitate toward that, or at least a percentage of those higher quality publications and not really pay attention to the rest. I'm, that's speaking for myself as a, as a consumer in, sure. you know, in this space, because I have gotten similar questions to you as the running newsletter space has exploded. I mean, I started the morning shakeout almost seven years ago and there weren't many, I don't want to say any, there weren't many weekly running themed newsletters out there. And now there are at least a dozen and a half, if not two dozen that that I can think of. And I, I say the same thing. I, I think we can actually help each other out. And I always think the quality publications are where people are, you know, are going to go and they're not going to read just one quality publication. They're going to subscribe to the other ones. I mean, speaking for myself, I subscribe to Allison Wade's Fast Women newsletter. I subscribe to Kyle Merber's um, The Lap Count because they're good quality publications. We have overlap between the three of us. Um, we're distinct in our own ways, but I know a number of people who subscribe to all three because to your point, they, you know, they, they kind of fill you know, they fill that cup for the person who is just really into running and it's a big part of their life and they just can't get enough good stuff. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think that there's so many areas where you can, where people are just, I, I was, I, I, I was in a magazine shop the other day and I was really marveling at, there's a whole bunch of magazines about self-edge denim. And I was like, that's, that's pretty niche <laughs> Like, that's very not, niche, yeah. <laughs> not everyone in the world wears denim jeans, right? But a lot of people wear denim jeans. A lot of people. 99, I would suspect 99% of them don't buy magazines about denim jeans. They just go into a shop, buy a pair of denim jeans, put them on, wear them until they fall apart, buy another pair, you know. But there's a group of people for whom it's important enough that they invest money in in their hobby by probably buying multiple pairs of very expensive jeans and they will buy these these magazines and they'll buy books and they'll watch videos and they'll listen to podcasts about denim and I was like this this is very analogous this is this is kind of where I'm at is is and and you know thankfully um we aren't um oh, thank yeah thankfully let's let's say thankfully we're not in a situation where I need or want to have, you know, copy sales targets in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I'm I'm really happy with just reaching those people who are the the selvage denim <laughs> aficionados of running. <laughs> so no, that resonates with me because I've had a number of unsolicited inquiries giving me 
advice on how I can grow the Morning Shakeout subscribership through buying Facebook ads or, you know, some like digital marketing Ponzi type scheme, which has no interest to me. I'm like, no, I, I want to grow this thing much as you have with Light the Wind through word of mouth. I want people who value it enough to tell other people, hey, I think you might be interested in this. Check it out. And it is that, you know, slow, slow growth, which I think jives well. What both of us do really is slow journalism, as, yeah. as you called it. I mean, you know, my newsletter, I designed it from the very beginning to be you know, something you can get through in five to 10 minutes. But these podcast conversations generally range from one to two hours, if not a little bit more. That's a commitment. I mean, even if you put it on, you know, one and a half speed, which I don't recommend people do, I want you to kind of hear people at their normal cadence, but that's a whole nother conversation for a different day. Um, but I, I think, you know, those two things kind of go in parallel with each other is, is the growth aspect of things, but also the type of content that you're putting out. If you're putting out, you know, five listicles every day and you're posting everything to, you know, social media and you have like, you know, paid advertising. I mean, to me, that doesn't feel sustainable. Then that is the antithesis of, you know, let's call it slow media. Uh, that is the antithesis of, you know, slow growth. And that's fine if that's, if that's what you want to do. But I, I know, I can speak for you in this case because we've had this conversation that those aren't the people that we're, you know, trying to attract. And that's not, you know, in this space that, that we operate in how we want to go about it. And, 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 you know, this, I, I never, I'm never um, negative. I never denigrate any other, anyone else out in the, out in the space. Right. Because there is, when we, you know, when I started running, I bought, runner's world because i didn't know what the hell i was doing and i needed advice on the best running shoes i I, I wanted exactly what they published um you know the listicles they work for people they like some people love it that you know i don't know tiktok is is great for for certain people it's not there's there's i don't think there's one true way of doing anything honestly i think that um but, but, but what i'm really interested in and you've just made a very good point is the growth in yeah in longer form journalism people spending an hour and a half two hours listening to a podcast which is especially in your case with the morning shakeout a very curated conversation it's not just well the guests in my case are probably just wittering fools but your your questioning takes the the listener through a, a really well curated conversation um that to me is a, a, a really great I, I see the upswing in that kind of journalism and I, and I love it and think it's brilliant. How have you and Julie been able to stay the course that you've set out on at the very beginning to be a quarterly print publication in an age where, I mean, even just since we last talked for the podcast four years ago, the proliferation of digital media has only continued to to skyrocket the number of places where content producers are are showing up has diversified i mean you know beyond measure at, at this point really but i mean you've just stayed the course and four times a year magazine comes out you have a website you might republish a story or two to the website you have a social media presence where like the wind will you know let people know 
some of the stuff that that's coming out, but you haven't prioritized any of those other things. You have just really stayed the course as a, a print publication in an age, especially in this this running and outdoor sports space where we've seen a number of publications either scale back their operation to, you know, two to four times a year or eliminate print completely. Yeah. I mean, we, again, because Light the Wind started out as a, as a side project, we didn't put much commercial pressure on it. So it, it was fine. It was just, I mean, as I said, the first, I can't even remember now, but the first half a dozen issues, I think, lo- were certainly lost money. And Julie and I would just sort of scratch our heads and look in the, um, you know, look in the bank account and figure, wow, okay, we could just about afford to put out another issue. Um, so, we, so we didn't put ourselves under a lot of pressure to make money, um, which was super helpful. Um, and so without that pressure, we didn't need to, you know, it, we, we didn't need to fold it as long as we were happy to stay the course and just, and just sort of figure out how to pay the print bills, uh, you know, at four times a year. Um, this sounds really cheesy, but it's genuinely true that uh, there have been several points where I've said, look, this is nuts. We've got to stop. We've got a really fast growing marketing business and the magazine is just getting it's just getting too much honestly and all without exception every time we've had that conversation right or even i've just been having a conversation in my head somebody will send us an email saying um i've got a i've got a suggestion for a piece um you know i've got an idea for a story um what do you think and I think, wow, we really need to tell that story. Like that story deserves to be, you know, um, published. So we'll do one more issue. You know, we'll 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 just um, we'll, we'll we'll kind of figure out a way of producing another another episode, uh, another issue of like the Wind magazine, and uh, and um, kind of make it work somehow. So that that I think. The, the fact that we still keep getting these amazing stories combined with it's not pressure it's it's the amazing support from people that are buying the magazine around the world makes you think well we should we should keep going it's it sort of yeah along these lines you mentioned a couple times now how you've gotten better writers to contribute to the magazine the overall quality of the submissions that you're receiving continues to improve. How has that come about? Has that largely been you and your team reaching out to writers and asking them if they'd be interested or willing to put together a piece for you? Or have you gotten inbound inquiries from writers who you maybe would have been scared to reach out to would have said, no, there's no way that this person would ever want to write for like the wind. And you were just, you know, maybe one of those situations where you're like, you know, Julie, come over here. Like, uh, look, who's sent us an inquiry and asked if they could write a story for the magazine. I'd love to learn more about that. Well, that's happened a couple of times where we've had an inbound email and I thought, really, (laughs) this is amazing. Um, it's a bit of both. I think, What's been really interesting, so a lot of the time I, I will try and find writers, especially now when we're in a position where we are um, able to, 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 to sort of pay some, some people. Um, we're, not, we're not able to pay everyone, but 
we can pay some people. Um, I will very purposefully try and find writers and say, look, you know, if you've got any ideas, um, I'm open to them and we, we can talk budget. It's not out of the question. And, you know, so, so I'll sort of proactively try and find people in, in, in that way. What's been happening recently as well, which I'm really pleased about, is there are people who want to create, who want to make a career in storytelling, in running. They're passionate about running as, a, as an activity and as a sport, and they love storytelling, um, whether that is photography or, or writing or illustrating or even something like filmmaking. And they've contacted me and said, you know, your Like the Wind is very rare in that it's a publication that allows me to, 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 to really um, express my creativity. I mean, I'll give you a really good example. One of the writers that we've been working with a lot recently, uh, or a few times recently, who I really admire, her work is absolutely amazing, sent me an email the other day about something completely different and said, I've just submitted a piece to a, to a publication. I won't mention who it was, but a, but a big newspaper. Um, and I submitted... 4,000 words, and the editors cut it down to 2,000 words for space. And that 2,000 words contains a lot of gold, and it's now on the cutting room floor. And I was like, I would never do that. We just, we just add pages. <laughs> and it, it's, so we, we are now having writers that are coming to us and saying, look, you, know, you allow us, you allow me to write about whatever I want uh, within reason and if the story requires 4,000 words or 6,000 words, we'll accommodate that. We don't, you know, I'm not giving somebody a word count. I'm saying tell the story in whatever it needs and we'll, we'll fit it. We'll, we'll, we'll make space for it. If it's, if it's a well-written story that's, a, that's about something important, um, you know, we'll make it work. So there's a lot of different ways now that we're, we're discovering and, and getting a chance to work with, with new and better writers for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting in this rapidly advancing digital world that we've mentioned and just overall proliferation of content, there are still very few homes for good long-form anything. Uh, podcasts, writing, photo essays, you name it. Videos, even it's like, oh, well, you know, the perfect length of, of a video is like three minutes. Well, yeah. if it's a 19-minute film... Maybe it's got to be a 19-minute film. Um, I was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours whose name I, I won't mention here is working on you know, a, a fairly important project right now. And he was asked to try and, and bring it in under 10 minutes. And he had 24 minutes of film that he couldn't figure out where to cut more than half of it from. And I was like, dude, if it's got to be a 25-minute film, Make it a 25-minute film. Find a home for it where it can be a 25-minute film or, you know, 6,000-word story or whatever it happens to be because there is an audience for that stuff. And and like the wind, as far as, you know, writing and photography and, and still stuff goes, is that home for, for a lot of people. I can't think of many other places. I mean, they certainly do do exist, but where those stories can can get told in their in their full form. And I mean, that's you know, one of the many things that I, I really love about like the wind and admire about the approach that you and Julie have taken to publishing it four times a year. It's worth saying at this point though, that, that 
I'm immensely grateful to these people that that don't restrict themselves when they're telling a story in like for like the wind. So because in writing, very often a, a writer will be paid by the word, right? Mm. Well, if somebody says, look, I've got a great story here, but it's 8,000 words, I can't afford it. I can't, I can't pay a decent word rate for 8,000 words. And I desperately don't want to say, well, look, I'd love to run the story, but can you cut it to a thousand words? Cause that's what I can afford. So, so we are working with a lot of writers who are saying, well, look, because it's like the wind, because we understand that even eight years in, we're still not, you know, we're not a big corporate. We're just, we're just a small team putting together something that is doing okay, but it, you know, we don't have tons of tons of money at our disposal. So we are having writers who are saying, look, I understand that. And, I'm not going to write to a word count based on what you can afford to pay. I'm going to write according to what story needs. And I'm happy with what we can, what we agree with them that, 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 that we can pay them. So, you know, uh, uh, they're probably somewhat grateful to us for allowing them to write these long form pieces, but I'm immensely grateful that they're happy to accept you know, probably less than the work work is worth because it, it's it's the situation that we're in. Yeah. If like the wind continues to grow in its current trajectory and you can increase readership and just the amount of overall revenue that it's bringing in, is that one of your goals to be able to pay writers and other contributors higher rates or rates that would be kind of on par with what they could get at similar types of magazines? For sure, 100%. And that is because I am obsessed, is not the wrong, is not the wrong word. I'm obsessed with being able to publish these great stories. And what I'm painfully aware of is that without outlets that are able to, to sort of give a writer a, an income that allows them to sustain themselves, they'll go and do something else. And then we'll lose them, you know, and and so I feel a responsibility responsibility is probably yeah, too strong a word, but I feel like we can be we can be part of um the solution. We can be part of um allowing these especially young people that are coming into who are sending me, you know, who are writing to me and saying, Look, I've I've I, you know, I ran track at college, I love running, it's it means everything to me. I finished my degree in journalism. So I really want to write about running because they're my two passions. But I've, got, but I've got to pay the rent. You know, I need to I need to make a living. And if those people can't figure out a way of sustaining themselves, they'll go, yeah, they'll leave. They'll go and do something else. And we as a running community, for want of a better word, will will be will be impoverished as a result because they, yeah. they, they, they just won't be there to tell the stories. They won't, they won't be, um, you know, so, so uh, yeah, I a hundred percent want to be part of this, the, the, of that, of that solution. Um, just, yeah. How is like the winds still very small staff evolved over the past years? Because it was just you and Julie putting it out, for quite a while now you have a co-editor you have some other folks who are helping out with 
various things. Talk me through that evolution. Um, well, we was, I was very lucky back, back in the, back in my history, when I left straight out of university, I got a job working, uh, funnily enough at a magazine publisher in a sector in commercial property magazine. <laughs> no interest in that at all. Um, but I needed a job straight out of university and there was a lady that worked on the, on the editorial team called Imogen and we were, we were really good buddies while we worked together. And then I left, I think she stayed, we completely lost contact. And then when Facebook came along, we somehow reconnected. I don't even know how. And Imogen by that stage was married, two kids, uh, you know, working a part-time job and her life had moved on significantly from when I knew her. And she picked up, she'd taken up running. So through this Facebook connection, she could see that I was constantly posting about running and so we just became friends and she would, we would, you know, talk on Facebook about running. And then I announced that we were publishing this magazine and Imogen said, I want in, I want to be involved. I love words. She's a fantastic wordsmith, um, brilliant sub editor. She's really, really loves running. Um, and she said, I want in. And I was like, well, we haven't got any, you know, we, we've, we've got no money. Uh, yeah, we can't even pay ourselves at this point. Yeah, we're just well, we're we're actually spending the money that we've saved up to renovate our kitchen on publishing it. So we're at zero, we're at minus here. And she said, "No problem, I just want it." So I think literally from issue two, Imogen was, um, you know, dipping in and out as as and when she could. I would send her pieces, she'd sub edit them, she would just help me to 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 kind of make the stories better. So Imogen's been there really right from the beginning still only part-time um but she you know she has other freelance writing and and, and and editing work so we're part of how she earns a living um alex who works with julie on the design side he came along i i'm gonna guess around about issue 10 11 something like that again just a really passionate runner who dropped us a line and said guys i love what you're doing i'm a graphic designer by trade can I help? What can I do? And same, exact same conversation. Look, we would love some help. Um, the magazine could do with somebody who's got more design skills and, and, and more experience. But, you know, we're not in a position to offer you a job or, or probably even, you know, pay initially. And he was like, it's fine. I just want in. I want to be part of what you're doing. And Alex, is, as I say, has been with us probably since about issue 10 or, or, or 12. And, um, Again, work has has other clients, and we're one of his clients, and and um, so that's how the magazine has developed from that point of view. And then we've been very lucky that one of our colleagues on on Free Stackers also does a bit of part time on Like the Wind, and and sort of looks after lots of our social, um, lots of our kind of customer service and stuff like that. So um, yeah, we've we've been very lucky that we've just happened to stumble across people who are really passionate about the project, and then sort of stuck with us until we got to a point where we could actually, um, you know, afford to make a, a contribution. How has the distribution of the magazine itself evolved and improved over the years? You mentioned earlier in this conversation how you're now in 40 countries. I think back to the chat that we had a couple of weeks ago, you are going to have a distributor based here in 
the U.S., which I don't think you had before, and that's going to open up just a whole nother pathway for you. Tell me a little bit more about that and what more you can still do to reach runners around the world. You're still based, I can't say UK anymore because you've since moved to Switzerland, but you know, in Europe or outside yeah. of the US. I mean, we still print the magazine in the UK. And up until, as you just rightly pointed out, up until really recently, we were sending copies to subscribers. We, so we, we don't really do newsstand. And, and the reason for that is that it's a very, the traditional way of doing newsstand is a very wasteful method where you, you, you go to a, you know, uh, an, an outlet, a news, newsstand or uh, a chain, you know, Barnes and Noble or whoever. And they take a whole bunch of copies of the magazine on what's called consignment. So you just ship them to them and then they sell what they sell. And then when your next issue comes out, they um, basically destroy what they haven't sold and you then get to charge them as a publisher. You then get to charge them typically 50% of the cover price of the number of copies they sold. So it's, it's very wasteful. <laughs> if you can imagine you send a publisher 10,000 copies, they sell 5,000. You can only charge them for 2,500 copies because you're charging 50% of 50%. And like the wind cost, would cost us more, it costs us more than that to print it. We'd be actually losing money. So then you get into this cycle of, well, the only way to make that work commercially is to sell advertising off the back of this circulation, which you're saying is 10,000, but in reality is 5,000 or less, right? Of numbers of copies sold. So we never went down that route. Um, we sell direct to subscribers. And, and there, is a, there is a caveat to that, which I'll come on to in a second. But basically, we were always shipping from the UK. Um, our commitment <laughs> to producing something in hard form, you know, in real form, has been tested beyond belief by COVID and rising costs. And it's become very much more difficult to ship an actual physical product around the world. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right. We are our dist our, you know, one of our partners is, is, has opened a facility in the U S that so will be shipping in bulk into the U S which then means that when somebody orders a copy, either as a subscription or a single copy sale, it's shipped from within the U S uh, domestically, which will speed the whole process up and reduce the number of co you know, copies that go AWOL. Um, and interestingly, and shipping costs too, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, not actually dramatically because once we've shipped in bulk, you've got to factor that in. That's kind of expensive. And then, and then we're shipping Fair domestically, enough. but you know, yes, it will to, to a degree. But, but for me, I'm, I've, we've always been more concerned about how we make sure that people receive the magazine, even if that means, you know, we had a flat distribution rate for the longest time and we would send certain copies to like, I don't know, Denmark and it would cost us 15 quid. <laughs> To send, to send a copy to Denmark, we were losing a fortune. But I was just intent on making sure the magazine got to the reader because that was the mission. Um, you know, so uh, interestingly, what's happened recently, which is very exciting, is that some of the bigger um, outlets have really started to move towards the indie indie publishing world, and they've said, um, "It's we don't insist on thousands and thousands of copies on consignment. We will take." 
a very, very small number of copies. We'll put them in very specific locations um, and we'll reorder when we need to, which works for us 100%. So, for example, we are now going to be stocked in Barnes & Noble. We're not going to be in every Barnes & Noble and it was only very specific locations that will take the magazine and they might take 10 copies. And when they get down to nine, they'll reorder. And because we have this facility now in the US, we can restock them. So that's going to, again, mean that we're not compromising on our low waste focus, but we are available in, you know, on new standards. Same, same is happening in the UK with WH Smiths, that they're suddenly saying, well, we're happy to take a few hundred copies and then reorder as they start to sell out, which is a much better way for us to, to, in, to engage with those newsstands. Um, and then, the, you know, the dream is that when we reach a certain critical mass, we'll be able to print in the US. So we'll print copies for the US in the US, we'll print copies for Europe in Europe. And that, again, you know, massively reduces shipping stuff around the world, which, um, yeah, will make our lives easier. How do you continue to keep Like the Wind globally appealing, being, you know, based in the UK slash Europe, but distributing out to 40 different countries where, I mean, there are a, a lot of similarities amongst runners, which is one of the beautiful parts of, of this sport, but it is a different culture in, in different places. Um, I'd love to get your insight on that. Yeah, that's another really good question. I think so. The so what we what we're about is ex, is exploring this idea of why we run, and I actually think that that is universal. Like running culture, what what motivates someone to do something that is actually reasonably hard? I think is it, it to me. I don't mind if you're a hundred. You know, it makes no difference to me if you're a hundred meter sprinter or you're running 100 miles on the trails, the, the why, the thing that drives you is, is going gonna, is gonna to transcend what type of running you actually do. So I don't think it would work if we were a news outlet because, for example, you know, the cross-country season in the US is one thing and it doesn't translate to you know, a right. European audience. They're like, well, I, don't, I don't understand this. It's not interesting. I don't, I don't care why somebody pushes themselves to be you know the the the, the us's you know leading cross country runner is a story that i believe will resonate with an audience in europe in in asia in australasia like ev everywhere because we we're, we're trying to get at the kind of the culture running the human spirit um so i don't think what the kind of stories that we publish have enough about them that makes them geo geo geolocated if that makes any sense um yeah no it, it does and again as someone who receives the magazine i'm and someone who has an editor's brain i'm just interested in that when i'm i'm flipping through and i know you and i know the magazine's origins and who works on it but i'm always impressed that if you were to just pick it up with no context you wouldn't really know where it was based and i think that is one of its main features well you would if you'd been in the slack discussion between me and imogen about whether we should whether we should change the word color c-o-l-o-r to c-o-l-o-u-r in a quote 
in the magazine. Or, <laughs> or realize to R-E-A-L-I-S-E instead of R-E-A-L-I-Z-E. Uh, just yeah. speaking from the column that I may have submitted a couple of years ago. Uh, not that it's not that it's bothered me that much. Just kidding. But, it, um, but yeah, I get I get what you mean by that. You have to you have to put a you know you have to put a pin in the map somewhere like somewhere on that front. But I mean, it, again, it's the same as when I read read and listen to everything that you do you, you you talk about universal issues that all runners relate to and i think that becomes then you know uh, it becomes irrelevant where the reader is based it's sort of you know there can be anywhere talk to me a bit about some of the other projects that have been offshoots of like the wind that you've been experimenting with of late. Uh, the most obvious is one I have right in front of me right now. I just received in the mail a week or so ago, your first book, Running mm. Wild, inspirational uh, trails from around the world. You and Julie edited it. Dean Carnazza supplied the Ford. I mean, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just really feels like an extension of the magazine to me. I mean, this is 250 ish pages. I mean, full color photography, amazing illustrations, great storytelling, like very consistent with what you're doing four times a year in the magazine anyway, but just, you know, very focused on trails from around the world. Like Talk to me about when this idea sort of started brewing, what the process of actualizing it was like, and what it means for similar types of projects moving forward. Well, that's a really uh, so. This um, that we published the book with a company called Thames and Hudson, and it was a guy there called Lucas Dietrich, and Lucas has a passion for uh, running and cycling. And he'd worked in the past with with some of the guys at um, at Rouleur magazine on on some magazines, uh, oh sorry, on some books. So he he approached us actually, and the original idea was that that um, Julie and I would travel to locations around the world and write these chapters, um, and then you know hashtag COVID, and that put the end that you know that put the kibosh on that. And and actually, so the I think the book is better as a result, but we had to reformulate the idea to become. 16 different chapters, one of which I wrote, one of which Julie wrote, and then 14 other people who wrote about uh, locations that they were intimately familiar with. And I think the book is is better as a result. Um, but yeah, I mean, Thames and Hudson came to us and or Lucas came to us and said, look, I, 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 you know, longtime reader of the magazine and I love what you do. And um, I think that we as a publisher, Thames and Hudson as a publisher, would do a good job of creating um, a book that sits in the um sort of somewhere in the travel travel lifestyle and then running space which is a little bit of a departure for us i mean it's a little bit more instructional there's elements of the book which is where you should go when you should go um which we don't have any of that in the magazine but obviously as for for a book that is a spin-off and is not literally like the Wind magazine in book form. It was necessary for it to be a, a little bit different. But, you know, Lucas knew what he was getting into. He'd been reading the magazine f- forever. So he knew the kind of stuff that we would want to put our name to and, and, and work on. So he gave us a lot of latitude. And, and, and it was great to work with a, a real book publisher. Um, you know, you and I were talking before we started this recording about the fact that they they have a thing called the cover committee. and 
I think when they said, oh, you know, you don't need to worry about the cover, the cover committee will decide on the cover. And we were a bit taken aback because we take a lot of pride in producing the cover of Like the Wind magazine. And we, we spend a lot of time thinking about it and trying to come up with beautiful arresting images. And suddenly we thought, oh, this mm, we're a bit, I don't know what the right word is, slightly uncomfortable about the fact that we wouldn't have any say in the cover. Yeah, you have to cede control to yeah. the publisher in that situation. But honestly, when we when we got the when the book arrived, we thought, wow, they've done such a great job just on the cover and every other aspect. But the cover, we were like, wow, that that is absolutely outstanding. And you can immediately visualize it on a bookshelf, both in a bookshop and in and in somebody's house. Um so that was that was an amazing experience to work on that. And, and again, it was me and Julian and, and Imogen who worked on it together. And, and uh, we worked with some incredible people, Lizzie Hawker, Rob Krah. Um, we had people, you know, from around the world talking about their local trail. They were the guides that, that, that created these chapters. Um, it was a brilliant experience. And I'm happy to say that Lucas is already kind of chipping away at, you know, what's the next one, you know going to be so so that was my next question for you going through that experience of putting a book together of letting a publisher handle all the details which you would handle for the magazine is it something that you are raring to do again or is it something that for now you'd want to hold off on because it just felt like too much or whatever the case may be in addition to your ongoing responsibilities with like the wind um no i think we're, we're super keen i mean it's another outlet it's another it, it's all about it's the same thing we come back to this mission of how do we tell stories in a way that is relatively you know slow uh well book publishing is really slow in fact not even relatively slow really slow um uh, so, so I think the the, the 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 appetite is definitely there. It's quite a big project, as you said. It's two hundred and fifty six pages. It was it's a, it's a lot of work. So, I think we have to be sure that we are um, ready and in the right place um, to 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 kind of embark on another project like that. Um, and we've just uh, announced we're about to release a new a, another project. Um, that we were asked to work on, which is um, a magazine for an organisation called Parkrun, and uh, I don't, I don't think Parkrun is hugely uh, popular in the US yet, but um, I'm sure it's here. It's there, there, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and for anyone that doesn't know, basically Parkrun is a, a Parkrun is a free weekly 5k timed 5k. Um, on a Saturday morning, well, certainly in the, in, it, I think most of them, Saturday morning, 9am, anyone can turn up and just run a 5k and your time is recorded. And, and so the, the, it's, a, it's a really great kind of social enterprise wrapped, in a, wrapped up in a race. Um, and they approached us and said, look, we, um, we would like a magazine, we'd like to publish a magazine to further their ambitions of helping people to, to you know, live a healthy life. And a magazine is a great way to to kind of get their messages around physical and mental health uh, into into people's hands. Um, so we've just 
sent that off to print. And that, again, it, it, it's like another, it's a spin-off. It's not really, um, it's certainly not a mini version of what of Light the Wind. It's a completely different uh, look and feel and, and, and the editorial content is completely different, although it it isn't, it still fully aligns with what, what we believe in as a, as a, as a publisher. So that's my question. How do you and Julie sort of decide what else to get involved in when these opportunities come your way? Because it's a full-time job and then some just putting out the magazine on a quarterly basis and managing everything related to that. But book projects and other magazine projects, even if not a direct offshoot of Like the Wind, takes time, energy, resources and i mean if nothing else i mean you julie and team have demonstrated over the years that you know you can you can grind and really like you know work on these things but it does get hard to do it all and it involves making some tough decisions so i'd love to understand what the lens that you look through is like when deciding whether or not to say yes to this or no to that I'm just the worst person to ask Mario because I just want to do everything. So <laughs> I, I'm, um, if there's a, if there's, a, I mean, there is, there is, there are many, many, many divisions of labor within my relationship with my wife, who is the co-founder of the two businesses that I'm involved in. But, but one of the divisions of labor is Julie generally being the voice of reason and saying, no, <laughs> we can't do that as well. Um, stops, me getting carried away and, and rushing off to every every project um, because I want to do them all. I mean, it, 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 there's I just I see a see an idea that is linked to storytelling and running, and I just like a dog with a bone. I just I'm just after it, and and um, so I think that's not a very good answer to your question. But I think that um, the real answer to your question is we just want to make sure that everything that we do is in the service of telling great stories about running and doesn't compromise on our sort of vision of making sure that we're not you know giving bad advice and telling people anything that 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 we don't believe in and and that we aren't um you you know doing doing anyone that we're telling stories to a, a, a disservice two more things on like the wind and media and publishing in general before i sort of pivot to turn the conversation to, to you and some of the things that you're in, involved in. But in the past couple of years, you and Julie relocated from the busy city of London to a much more quaint and quiet village in Switzerland. And I, I'm interested from a creative standpoint, what that transition has been like for the two of you going from you know, this, this busy, very energetic environment to somewhere a bit more quiet, very beautiful, uh, as far as nature and all of that's concerned, great place to run, but kind of the complete opposite of where you were based for so long. Yeah. I I mean, I would love to say that it hasn't made any difference and I genuinely believed it wouldn't. So when we moved, obviously, um, you know, Imogen doesn't live in London. She lives in in Norfolk, in the sort of east of the UK. And Alex uh, lives in Australia. So, and Laura, my colleague that I mentioned earlier, lives in Chicago. So 
we were never all in the same place at the same time. We never have been as far as like the wind is concerned. Um, Julie and I obviously are most of the time. So I kind of thought, well, it won't make any difference because we're just working. We've always worked remotely. We'll just continue. Um, in reality, what's happened since the um, uh, you know pandemic lockdowns have, loose, have, have, have kind of uh, lifted is that we found ourselves wanting to travel. So we went um, on a, we went to Nuremberg to visit Adidas HQ, which from where we are in Switzerland is, you know, we can just drive. So we went to Adidas HQ, then we went to Berlin, we went to Amsterdam on, on one sort of massive road trip. We're back in London currently, as we're recording this conversation now, I'm, I'm back in London. We came back for a thing called the night, the 10,000 meter PBs, um, which was in London. So um, I think, from a day-to-day perspective, moving to Switzerland has, has been great. You know, I'm five minutes from the trailhead running, five minutes jogging to the trailhead. You know, it's fabulous. I love where we live. I think from a connections and, uh, you know, events point of view, we're going to end up travelling, um, you know, quite a lot because – if you, you because things happen in big cities or things happen in other places, you know, I'm, I'm planning a, a trip, um, you know, towards the end of the year to come to New York um, for something. Actually, we could announce. I could just say what it's about. Nobody knows about it yet, but I could just say what it's about. Um, we are launching a, our first photo prize and uh, called Run Click, and um, we're doing it in collaboration with. Uh, with Stance and a couple of other brands and the idea is that we will um, invite photographers to submit their work we've got cash prizes uh, for the for the photos that are selected as the winners in certain categories by a by a, um, a panel of judges and then the idea is that we will have a uh, sort of an exhibition in London and then one in New York so I'm super excited because it it means that I, uh, I I have an excuse to travel stateside for the first time in well, nearly, nearly, yeah, well, certainly two years. Um, because I think you have to, you know, you've got to go to those places. I mean, San Francisco, New York, London, Berlin, they're, they're, they are, you know, they're really hubs for creativity and for running. So, um, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Last question on media, and we've gone well over an hour just talking about your publication and a little bit about the space in general, but give me your perspective on the current state of the running media. And that is a very broad question, but I think the running media landscape is also very broad. As we discussed earlier, there are a lot of little niche publications that have been around for a while or popped up in recent years. Some of the bigger ones are, are still there and they've changed just in terms of their their distribution, their reach, and some of their their focus. But as someone who publishes a, a magazine of his own and has been involved in this for a while now, I'd love to get your take and I'm happy to chime in with with mine and make this a little bit more of a back and forth of how, let's just say since we talked four years ago for this podcast it has changed in your opinion and experience well i'm i'm going to be unrelentingly optimistic and say that i think the future looks really great um i think where what we're seeing today is and you and i have both lived through this you know the internet has killed publishing it's killed 
you know, ink on paper. And we launched our magazine eight years ago. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who are like, you are absolutely insane. Like there nobody wants to a physical printed publication anymore. Like, what are you doing? And we did it regardless uh, for, for, for many reasons. Um, but I think that that point about traditional publishing, uh, you know, traditional publishing being undermined by the internet is true. I think that people no longer look to, for example, a magazine for training plans for, you know, product reviews. I think it's all available online and the internet is amazing for that. It's brilliant for that. I do it, but, you know, if I'm interested in researching, you know, uh, what's happening in the late, you know, the latest in trail running shoes, I go online, it's all there. It's, and I think that that's wonderful. Um, so I think that that type of publishing has really suffered. Um, I read a fantastic book about the Guardian newspaper and it described the amount of money that the Guardian used to make from classified advertising. And it right. was enormous. I mean, it really bankrolled the entire operation. The internet came along and within a matter of years, not decades, within a matter of years, they couldn't sell a classified ad. And all of that revenue had gone. And they had to adapt super fast. It's, a, it's an amazing book by, by um, a chap called Russ Brigger, who was the editor. And he, he oversaw that whole period of transition to the Guardian Online. And it, it's fascinating. Um, so I think that a section of the publishing world in running, as in everything, has, has really suffered. But I'm unrelentingly optimistic because I think that there is a whole new area of, maybe it's not even new, a resurgence in what we've talked about already with this, which is this longer form publishing podcasts, films that are a bit longer than a, than a, you know, than a YouTube short, um, magazines like Light the Wind, books. You know, Thames and Hudson didn't approach us, you know, because they thought we were a charity case. They approached us because they thought they could sell a 256-page book. Um, so I think that there's a, a resurgence in interest in that. And the two, that and the internet, can, can, can coexist. And so if you want to be in that, if one wants to be in that space and they can dedicate themselves, you know, you know it's not going to, we're not going to rush, we're not going to be rushing out anytime soon and putting a deposit on a sports car. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a great way to make a living. But, but I do believe that those, that, that niche idea means that there's plenty of opportunities um, for people to, to do longer form, what I would call slower journalism, that people will pay for. They'll, they'll you know, become a Patreon, for example, of your brilliant podcast. They will buy a subscription to a magazine. They'll, they'll pay for quality. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, people will pay for quality, especially in an age now where online – we're seeing more and more content go behind a paywall. Well, people aren't going to pay for content, no matter if it's on the internet or it's coming in the form of a magazine or what have you, if it's not of high quality. So I actually think that's a good thing because it is going to force the creators to dot their I's, cross their T's, and make sure that they're putting out good stuff. I think it makes the consumer scrutinize a little bit more where they are, you know, where they're putting their dollars. But then on the other side of it, I mean, advertising and brand sponsorship and partnership has 
helped keep this machine running for the longest time. They used to spend a lot of money on single-page ads in magazines, and that has certainly lessened. Uh, but that money has been distributed elsewhere. It went to banner ads on websites for a while. There's still a number of websites that that go that route, and I think they're some of the worst experiences on the webs. But we're seeing more and more brands you know, partner with these niche publications because they share, as we discussed earlier, just a similar outlook and they want to reach the same audience. But they also realize that they don't have to be everything to everyone. They can really dial it in in, in that way. And I, I think that is a, a positive thing. It can be frustrating at times, especially as a consumer, because it's just, you know, so much content. But I do think that the quality will always rise to the top. And the consistent quality is going to be sustainable for the long term, no matter how it's supported, whether it's through advertising, sponsorship, partnership, whether it's through direct reader support or some combination of those things. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I want to shift the conversation to you. And this is, I mean, this has all been kind of personal curiosity, but where are you, Simon Freeman, right now, mid 2022 in your relationship with running well again an interesting question i um i think in in like recently i've realized that i operate better when i have a target in everything i do and with running i've kind of um not had a target you know, I got obsessed with trying to run a quicker marathon and, you know, reached my Zenith, my personal, my personal best just after Julie and I had launched, uh, like the wind and, and just before that free stack. So we had two businesses that we were trying to get off the ground. And I, I you know, I distinctly remember crossing the finish line in London and having set another marathon pb and just thinking i i don't think i can do that again i don't think i can spend that amount of time given that we've got these businesses and, and it's kind of real now like i have no income <laughs> if these things don't work um or certainly free stack so i kind of happily at that point just drew a line under it right that's it i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm i am where i am i'm happy with what i've achieved at least i thought i was um i'll move on now and that was yeah eight years ago and i realized certainly in the last few years that i'm not very happy <laughs> i keep getting kind of drawn back to the idea that i could return um to try and do something but you know i'm 47 now um it's uh it, i i think what i need what i've decided i'm going to focus on is is setting myself some some different target like there's a brilliant phrase um and i cannot remember who said it but um uh about um uh, comparison comparison is a thief of joy and i think that one of the struggles that i've had is that i compare myself now to the to the me you know that was running 100 mile weeks and sure. training training nine times a week and i'm not that person anymore so i need to stop comparing myself and, and find something else so it's I'm, I'm working do. on that. Yeah, for, for sure. Especially, especially when you, 
you've built your life around this thing. I mean, I was running before Julie and I launched our sports marketing agency and before we launched a running magazine. And they were an expression, I guess, of this thing that I loved that I wanted to then make my profession. And, um, and to then kind of realize that you're not the runner you used to be um, is, is a bit of a, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, a, a process. But it's okay because I think I'm landing in a place where I've worked out what my new target is going to be. Um, we've moved to the mountains. So I've always loved running in the mountains, but I've always struggled with accessibility because when you live in London, you get to go running in the mountains infrequently when you're on holiday um whereas now i live in the mountains so um i think the target is going to be um trying to run a hundred mile a hundred mile trail 100 miles on the trail although again going back to what we said earlier about julie being the voice of reason she said well you haven't done a hundred kilometer race in three or four years so maybe you should try that first <laughs> i was getting all carried away with i'm going to do a hundred miler but you know that's i think that's where we're going to that's the target I'm going to set myself. It's a good thing that we have the partners that we do to keep us <laughs> in line and sensible in our in our approaches to things. I love hearing that. And it's almost kind of a full circle moment for you because Like the Wind was conceived on the trails around yeah. Mont Blanc. And yeah. you don't live too, too far from there now. Similar terrain throughout Switzerland. And... I mean, in the eight years that this magazine has has been a thing, that really hasn't been something you've been able to focus on for you know a, a period of time. And now you're at this, uh, I don't even want to call it, maybe it is a crossroads of, of sort where, you know, professionally with Like the Wind, it is now something that for the first time since it was conceived, you can really pour everything that you have into it. And then from a running standpoint, being a goal oriented person, um, you can simultaneously pour yourself into training for, you know, this, you know, this hundred mile race for, you know, the first time. And I mean, ever for, for that distance, but just toward a goal, um, that you want to chase for the first time in quite a while because you thought those days were behind you. And I think that's one, just, just really interesting and just, you know, really beautiful how those things have come together like that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Last question. Thinking about the tagline of like the wind, why we run, why do you Simon Freeman run? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Amazing. You know, uh, in Like the Wind 32, which is the issue that is currently with the printer and will be out in a couple of weeks, um, I wrote the editor's letter about uh, the idea of change, um, of the fact that things that we do, the reason we do things that we do, aren't, nece aren't necessarily static. So... And this was partly um, prompted by the fact that somebody made a comment about how when we launched Like the Wind, we relied on people giving us content for free. Because as I said, you know, Julie and I were literally paying to publish the magazine. It was losing money. And we were spending our 
salaries, you know, on, on keeping it going. And it's changed. So I talked about how the magazine now is much more intentional about the fact that we're going to talk about social issues, which wasn't the case when we started out. And we are paying contributors as far as we possibly can. Um, and this person kind of made a comment about, well, you know, you don't pay contributors. And I thought, well, we didn't, but now we do. And I was thinking about this, about the change. So the honest answer to your question is when I started out, I ran because I was really, really embarrassed at how unfit and, and overweight I was. That was literally the reason I started running was I was in horrible shape. Uh, I had, I was, I'd been a smoker for 15 years, you know, I, I, I couldn't run up a flight of stairs and I was, he- you know, very heavy as well. And so I just, I wanted to just try and get fit. And that's why I started running. And then it became chasing this marathon PB, like how fast can I run a marathon? I got obsessed. Um, and now it's something else. Now it's um, it's for clarity of, of, of mind. It's, I'm 47 years old, um, you know, trying to keep in shape. It's for the community. I always want to be fit enough that if I find myself in Boston and I'm invited on a shakeout run led by the one and only Mario Frioli, I can just about keep up. <laughs> this is this is part of the mission. Um, so it's different reasons. And, 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 um, and having just said what we've just said, uh, I think giving myself a target, even if it's just complete, I say just completing a hundred miler non-competitively, that will also be part of why I run because, um, you know, I, it would be disingenuous for, for me to suggest that there isn't an element of ego of wanting to achieve something that I'm proud of. Um, so I, yeah, it's a, it's not a static answer. It changes. It's a beautiful answer. And I love it because I think anyone listening to this, certainly speaking for myself, that reason on some level or levels has to change over time and your involvement with the sport and or activity of running, because I've struggled with that too. I mean, I started running honestly to keep in shape for basketball when I was in high school. I don't care about racing at that point or running in college or running marathons down the road. I mean, all of those things came. And when they did, it was exciting and it was wonderful and a big part of my life. And I still have goals that are competitive that I want to chase. But I've also had periods too where those things weren't important. I ran for, she said, clarity for my mental health. Um, I ran because, and I still do, it's my social time with other people. And I had to be open to that change. And I think there are a lot of runners listening to this who need to know they have permission to change the reasons why they run. It doesn't have to be this one static thing. There can be elements of it that are consistent throughout your life, but it's okay that it changes. And I think for those of us who competed at one point or considered ourselves competitive runners, it is hard to let go of that. Uh, and it is hard to, you know, change that reason. Well, why should I do this if I can't run a marathon PB anymore, or if I can't race? And it's like, well, running can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. And it's part of what I loved about your answer. But to round this out, what I love about what you and Julie have created with Like the Wind, because you show that in every issue of 
the magazine, all of the content that you put out. And I think that's why it's grown as organically as it has over the years. You've got more people who run for different reasons, seeing a bit of themselves in what it is that you guys are putting out four times a year. So kudos to both of you on that. Thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing because it is the only running magazine that I subscribe to. You tried to offer me free copies at one point. I was like, no, I want to support what you're doing. I think that's important. It speaks to to me. And I mean, just in the few years that I've been subscribed, been at different points of my own running life and have run for different reasons, but I've always found something in, in what it is that you're doing. And lastly, I just appreciate this opportunity to speak with you at length about where things are at, how they've evolved, get some of your thoughts on on the media and yourself. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Simon Freeman. And I thank you so much for coming back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, I, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity because, you know, you, you are such an important part of running culture. Though you, you and I have had the opportunity to cross paths. We could talk for hours. Oh, you know, the, the things that we've done together, you know, live talks in, in, in Chamonix and things like that. I mean, it, honestly, what you contribute to the running culture is, is invaluable. So thanks for having me back and um, thanks for, for producing this, you know, fantastic podcast. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to Tracksmith and Open for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring-summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. My personal favorites are the Session Tee and the Alston Half Tights. If you buy anything on Tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field by using the code MARIO22 at checkout. That's MARIO22 when you check out at Tracksmith.com. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. I do a 5-10 to minute breathwork class most days to get away from my desk and clear my head. Let's take a class together. Open is giving Morning Shakeout listeners 30 days free when you visit withopen.com slash Mario. Again, you can join me on Open by going to withopen.com slash Mario. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.